Well, good morning again. I appreciate John's prayer. It made me think maybe he had stolen a copy of the sermon, though. We are moving into some hard texts, no doubt, if you are reading ahead in Colossians. I know we have some guests here this morning, so I will just point out that we preach the Word of God, and we preach it sequentially through books of the Bible, and we are in Colossians at this point in time. Let me begin with a quote. Almost saved, but not quite. Almost saved, but not quite. Those are words that we would never want to hear about anything. Right? We, we wouldn't want to hear it about our car that we left that was teetering in the ditch, that it was almost saved, but not quite. That would give us no comfort. But that is a far more dreadful statement when it refers to eternal life. Almost saved, but not quite. Now, you can park that phrase in the back of your mind. We will come back to it. But those were actually the words that Charles Spurgeon suggested would be on the tombstone of Lot's wife, if there were such a thing. Almost saved, but not quite. Now, we continue, as I said, in Colossians this morning. And so it's no surprise where we are in this letter. And if you've read ahead, you know that God will begin to challenge us today through His Word. And if you've read farther ahead, you know that He will continue to challenge us for the next several weeks by the truths of His Word. So I want to remind you of a couple of things as we move into this. I first remind you of Philippians 2, 12. That we are told by God the Holy Spirit to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. And I would just pause and ask, how many actually do that today? How many actually ponder and work out their salvation according to the truths of God's Word with fear and trembling? 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine ourselves. Examine yourselves, it says, to see whether you are in the faith. And that is something we should continually do, but we must remember that these are not based on feelings and emotions, but both of these things must be done through the Word of God, by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, and always remembering that what we are dabbling with here is not the opinions of men, but the very Word of God. And so we seek the will of God as revealed in His Word. So as we move into these harder texts, texts that instruct us on what to do and how to behave, I want to also remind you that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works, and we're not saved by religious rituals or coming to churches or doing certain things. We're not saved by our good deeds. Paul is not writing of that to the Christians in Colossae. The Bible is consistent from Genesis to Revelation on that point. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alone. And our assurances, our comfort, our confidences in our salvation come through the promises of God given through His Word and the salvation that was purchased by the obedient life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are promises like the one that we read in our opening psalm, if you picked up on it, verse 20. The Lord preserves, He keeps all those who love Him. So what we're moving into has an awful lot to do with sanctification, which is lifelong. And we will not reach perfection in this life, but we must continue to heed the warnings that are given to us in Scripture and to answer the call to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy and it is Him that we serve. And so I return to those words, almost saved but not quite. You see, Lot's wife is a great case study because she was so close to salvation. 
but she was holding on to the world in her heart. She loved the world. She loved those who were in the world. She loved the love that she received from them. She was never able to deny self, take up her cross, and follow Jesus Christ, even while holding the hand of an angel, dragging her away from Sodom. And so we receive in the Gospel of Luke three words. It's an admonition. It's a warning. It's spoken by Jesus, and he's speaking to his disciples. And he says these three words, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. And it is those three words that just kept resonating with me as I studied our text this morning. Because you see, if Jesus Christ, if your faith in Him, if His work in you, and the Word of God will not change your life, if you are indeed slaves to the opinions and the foolishness of men and women who fill our airwaves today telling you what they think God would like, if God's truth would not have you leaving everything to follow Jesus, to worship Him, if you are still beholden to your old sinful ways, even though Scripture says the old man is dead, behold the new if we're in Christ. If you are wedded to politics and culture and social issues that are opposed to Jesus Christ in His Word, but you still profess to walk with Him and to abide in Him, then I beg you, remember these words that Jesus spoke. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. We will come back to that at the end, and I think that will all make sense to you. But let's turn to our text. Our key text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Therefore... Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how You have spoken to us through Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would open our eyes and hearts, that it would illuminate this text, that it would uh, keep this weak preacher, from speaking anything but your truth, that you would guide us this morning, that we would worship you and that our hearts would be pricked with truth and our lives would be changed, transformed ever and always, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and living lives worthy and pleasing of him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 6, this verse 6 that we hit, it's actually transitioning us into the body of the letter. And I would just encourage you, always remember what you're reading here is just a letter, right? It, the chapters and verses are added for our convenience in terms of reference, but it is to be read, and it was read in the churches as a letter. So verse 6 transitions us into the body of the letter that continues all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 1 and 2 up through verse 5, where we ended last week, was actually just a very lengthy introduction, kind of like my introduction this morning, I suppose, very lengthy, Right? It set the stage for what is to come. And the body of the letter now that we move into, it is distinctly focused on what it means and what it looks like to live in Christ, saved, and Christ in you. It is focused on what the life of a true Christian is consumed with. It is focused on living for the Master, abiding in Jesus Christ, finding your strength in Him, knowing, as He says in John, That apart from Him, you can do nothing, nothing pleasing to God. It speaks of having a mind devoted to the revealed truths of God on every page of Holy Scripture. And being conformed throughout this life to the image of Christ and submitting your will to God's will in all things. In a way, 
This is actually all summed up in just a couple of verses that we've covered in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. That all of you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And now we're going to be instructed on how to do that. You see, up to this point, Paul has accomplished a lot in his introduction. It could stand alone on an, as a letter in itself. He provides, first off, the basis for the Christian hope, our blessed hope, Jesus Christ, right? The gospel itself he lays out. You, I hope, know the gospel, that the eternal Son of God was born of a virgin, lived as a man, fulfilled God's law perfectly in a way that we cannot, and though without sin, he bore the wrath of God against our sin, the sin of all who will repent, turn away from sin, and believe in Jesus. And he went to the cross and gave up his life. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And it is from heaven that we await his return in power and glory to come and judge the living and the dead according to his righteousness, according to his word. And the Christians in Colossae had heard this message. They understood the grace of God in truth. They believed. They received Christ as Lord. And they had stood against the false teaching and the error that was being pronounced among them. And this we have seen. Now Paul then presented in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, this high Christology, presenting Christ as both Lord and Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then he notes in Colossians 1.21, something that we must not lose sight of, that the true Christian is a changed man or a changed woman. He says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is actually the starting point for all of us, right? We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are rightly children of wrath, deserving God's justice. Ephesians 2 tells us this. But for those who turn to Jesus in faith and submission to his lordship, we have been transformed, reconciled to God by the person and work of Jesus. And in that, our friends change, and our associations change, and our behavior changes, and our speech changes, our thoughts, what we follow changes, what entertains you changes. See, all of this is evident in the lives of a follower of Christ. A mere profession of faith, your words are meaningless if the life remains unchanged and you continue to run with the world. And then we know in Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5, that the ministry is laid out, the ministry of Christian faith, the mission for all Christians, that we will truly know Jesus, that we will live for Him by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God, that we will proclaim the gospel to all who will listen. Doing what? Both warning them, as Paul says, and teaching them in accordance with the full counsel of His Word. I heard this week from a long-term member a question, what is the mission of the church? What is the vision of the church? And I would say, we, one, we can go back a couple weeks and listen to the sermon on that, but the mission of this church, so everybody is clear on it, is to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do, this worship service, the classes we teach, everything we do as a church is designed to fulfill that mission. To build up disciples of Jesus Christ, walking ever more closely with Him according to the full counsel of His Word. And to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples. And if what you're thinking and what you're doing doesn't fit there, stop. 
and refocus. Right? That's, in essence, what Paul has been saying here. Go, teach, warn. Teach them the full counsel of God. And now he makes the transition. He says, therefore, and the reason we did that little summary is because the therefore points back to everything he has said up to this point. Therefore, having said this, based on all that has been written, he is now going to transition into what really is the summary for the whole letter, verses 6 and 7. And so we'll cover these under four headings. You have them in your handout. Living for Christ, growing in Christ, abundantly thankful, and remember Lot's wife, which we'll come back to. I was sure I was going to get a question sent to me after I sent that out this week saying, I think you made a mistake that that, that the Lot is in Genesis. But we'll, we'll get there. It will make sense. Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. The clear, the unambiguous statement made by God the Holy Spirit to His church, the church of Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, is that if you have received Jesus Christ as the Lord of all, your daily life, your walk, it's just a, a metaphor for life, should be consistent with what Scripture teaches us about God, His will, His nature, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should love what He loves. We should hate what He hates. We should grieve. For the lost. And I would emphasize that. Not to judge and run away, but grieve and reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We must speak truth to all who will listen. We are those who people should see who are willing to set aside our interests in life, who are willing to suffer if the case may be, to worship, to honor Christ. You cannot love and approve and accept the same things that the world loves, and that's what's hard on so many. But in fact, if Christ is in you by the work of the Holy Spirit, you won't want to. It won't happen all at once, but it will happen over time. You have to remember that the world is at enmity with God. We are warned in Scripture, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You don't know that verse, James 4.4. That's one to let resonate in your head. If you are desiring to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And you can have no worse enemy, trust me, than God himself. That is not the place you wish to be. You cannot serve two masters. And so what is the problem? The problem is that's not what we see when we look around us at the church today. We could spend the entire rest of the morning going over just different examples from this week. We won't. But what do you typically run into? You run into people who say that they have believed. They have in our way of speaking these days, they have accepted Jesus Christ. They've accepted Him. And yet they live exactly the same way that the world does. They pursue the same hobbies. They have the exact same priorities on Sunday mornings. They will be gathered with the atheists and the pagans and you will have a hard time differentiating between the two. They watch the same entertainment that poisons the heart. And numbs us to sin. And given our time of year, it's actually very public. It's very troubling to me as I drive around town. And I, I know some of these people, they're not in our church, but they all tell me they go to church. Or they tell me they belong to a church. As I've told you many times, my second question when somebody tells me they belong to a church is, when was the last time you went? And that will usually be met with some stumbling silence, I can tell you. But this time of year is one of those times of years that is always so troubling. Because they put signs in their yards. 
And they identify themselves not with Jesus Christ, not as his disciples, but instead they advertise their allegiance to those who hate God. You've seen the signs. These lives matter, and I won't go into all of the things. And other signs with parties and people who stand opposed to God. They don't ever advertise their allegiance to Christ, but to those who hate God, who hate His righteousness, who hate His holiness, who hate His sovereignty as the creator of all things. And their priorities are not secret. They're in writing, they're out there, people openly talk about them. They are determined to destroy the image bearers of God because they hate God and they can't destroy God Himself. So they will mutilate boys and girls. They will rabidly seek to murder the unborn. And that is their primary witness to the world. And some who claim Christ is their Lord actually betray that by advertising their allegiance to this. And that grieves me. I hope it grieves you as you see it driving around town. It can be out of ignorance, but not for you. It's not ignorance for you. Now here's where we could rightly stop and say remember Lot's wife, but we're not ready there. What does it mean to receive then? Jesus Christ is Lord. What is this verse telling us? What does it mean to receive Jesus as Lord? Well, the first thing you should see in that verse is that you must receive Him. You cannot do anything to save yourself. We are hopeless in that regard. You can be a really good person. You can do really good things. You can do a lot of good in the world's eyes, and frankly, you can do a lot of good in the church's eyes. You can be a friend to us in our endeavors but an enemy of Christ. When it comes to salvation, we must remember the words of the prophet Isaiah that all our good deeds, all our righteous works are like a filthy rag, a polluted garment. They're not good enough. There's salvation in only one way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the work of God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that. Another verse, just to let it soak in. Remember it. It is God's grace. It is a gift. And we should be so thankful. In Mark 10, 15, for those with spectacular memories, I looked this up. We preached this verse in September of 2020. I don't remember what I preached. I don't expect you guys to either. Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We must receive Christ as Lord, and to receive Christ like a child is to come in humility, to come in submission, to come knowing that you have nothing to offer Him. You have empty hands. All that you can do is receive God's grace and God's mercy that He gives us freely. To come like a child is to come looking to the One and seeking His truth that is completely revealed for us in God's Word. It is to love God. It is just to seek to obey Him. Like children do, because you know that you belong to Him and that you want Him to approve of you. To receive is ultimately and essentially to receive the foundational truths of the gospel. And we find these in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says he received these from the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore passes it on to us that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised in accord, on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. And often we stop there. You must believe that to receive Christ. But 
what is often lost, what is often intentionally withheld and hidden in our present day because it makes us very uncomfortable, is that we receive Jesus not only as a Savior, but we we receive Him as Lord. That, That is what our verse says, and that is essential. Let me put it this way. Jesus can only be your Savior because He is Lord. He can only be your Savior because He is Lord. You cannot be saved by anyone other than God Himself. And so he sent his son, the God-man, Jesus. You can't have a savior without his lordship, without his sovereign rule, without his, his mastery over every aspect of creation, both in heaven and on earth, which is why the Apostle Paul has covered that already in this letter. To say Jesus is Lord is just shorthand for what he has already said in Colossians 1.15 through 2.3, just a couple of references there. Right? He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's how we know Him. He's the firstborn over all creation, meaning He has His rightful place above and is the ruler and the one who has inherited all creation. He's the head of the body, the church. The only one with power to reconcile all things to God, and that He has done by His death and resurrection. And in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for He is the mystery of God revealed to us. Jesus is the God-man who will return. And when He returns, He will exact His vengeance on all who rebel against Him. Something we also don't often include, but He will execute God's judgment in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. He is subject to no one. He is Lord of all. As Revelation 19 says, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He bows the knee to no one, but all knees will bow to Christ one day. And confess that He is Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that the psalmist wrote of in Psalm 2. You may know this psalm. The rulers, the powers, the nations. They all gather together. They conspire against God and against His anointed. His Son. Which is about as effective as the ant that is rebelling against your shoe as you get ready to stomp on it. It's completely ineffective. God laughs in derision. And He reminds us that He has set His Son as the ruler over all the earth. And then he warns in that psalm that Jesus shall break the rebellious nations and rulers with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He tells all who will listen, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. And I ask, is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus that is proclaimed? He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He is humble and He is meek and He came in humility to seek and to save the lost and that He did. But He will return in power and glory. This is no meek man. This is the God man. And if you can grasp this, that He is Lord, then you will walk in Him. You will live for Him. And it's troubling today because, again, we don't see it. We just don't see it. And I don't really understand myself. I ponder these things. What motivates people to twist and bend God's word as opposed to just outright denying him and going their own way? It's a terrible thing, but Scripture does not give us that option. It doesn't present the opinions of men. It doesn't give us the flexibility to search for a man or a woman who will tell us that our sin is okay. And yet you can go online, and and I'm convinced of this, you cannot think of a sin 
that you can't find somebody who will tell you it's okay. Everything from murder onward. You will find somebody to tell you that that is okay, even though it's contrary to the clear word of God. These opinions are easy to find, but when you find them, you find the agents of Satan speaking the original lie to you. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Genesis 3, that worked on Adam and Eve. It works on so many today, whether they profess Christ or whether they deny Him. But to recognize the authority of Jesus as Lord is to turn to His Word and to live moment by moment in Him. It means we will seek to maintain a lifestyle that looks like His. 1 John puts it this way, By this we may know that we are in Him, that we are saved. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk, ought to live in the same way in which He lived. How do you do that? That is a lofty goal. How do you live in Christ? It's not as confusing as you might think. By knowing His Word and applying it to your life moment by moment. Can the church help with this? Well, I think so. That's why we have small groups, actually. We preach the Word of God on Sunday morning. And in an intimate setting, living life with one another, that same Word is dove into And we look to see how do we apply that to our lives moment by moment. That is the whole goal. You live in Christ by praying that the Holy Spirit will enable you to live pleasing to Christ. To shave off the rough edges. Praying to be convicted of your smallest sins. So that you can repent. So that you can try again. So that you can walk in faith. And we know there's no way to live perfectly and sinlessly in this life. That's never what is being given to us. It is why repentance is daily in the life of a Christian. Because you're convicted of these sins and you repent and you're forgiven. Right? Jesus promises if you confess your sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 It is why repentance is daily. It is why the gospel is actually for believers first. A constant reminder to us. That He came and He paid the penalty for that sin. And I must turn to Him. It is the message we proclaim to the unbelieving world, but it is first and foremost for us to remind ourselves. And so we strive to grow in Christ in accordance with His Word. That is our second point, Colossians 2.7. So walk in Christ, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. I went, I feel like anyway, that I went heavy on the Greek stuff a few weeks ago. So there's no Greek lessons here. But there's three verb tenses here. And so I'm going to read you the same verse out of the NASB and not mention, hopefully, Greek more than I already have. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. Now these are two metaphors that should be extraordinarily easy for us to understand given where we live and what we do. Right? The first is agricultural. We should get this, having been firmly rooted. At the moment of salvation, by God's grace, when you responded in true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone, you were rooted, you were planted in Christ. And He then becomes the source of all spiritual life and nourishment and fruit in your life. We know that you don't go out in a field and plant a seed to try to hide it. You plant it so that it grows, it sprouts, it develops leaves, it serves its purpose, right? It provides shade, it provides fruit, or in our world, hopefully it provides grain. But we're not saved by that fruit. We're not saved by the fruit in our lives. We have to get that in our heads. Because we get these constant back and forth. 
You cannot be saved by the fruit in your life. And the reason you need to have that so firmly planted in your mind is that you will drift towards legalism if you start relying on your obedience for salvation. You're not saved by that. You can be on every single committee at church and you can drive here five days a week and you can do all of these things and that really doesn't count as anything. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't, but all that does is make you one of the greatest Pharisees, right? You're super religious, you're tied to all these things, but you must have the love of Christ in your heart. Those things have to result from being saved. You can't go towards them and claim that you're working towards your salvation. Without the love of Christ, you remain dead in your sins. You're a very good dead person, but you're still dead. You must have life in Christ. The fruit doesn't save, but here's the flip side. The fruit must be there. The fruit must be there. We are called to do so many things, the simple things, setting aside the Lord's day, gathering to worship Him. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints, he says in Hebrews. Little things. You just can't do what the pagans do. You are called to a different life. We're called to serve one another, to love one another as Christ loved us, sacrificially, intentionally, coming alongside one another, joining a church, gathering with the saints. All these things, it won't save you. None of that will save you, but it is evidence of who the Lord is in your life, who is truly the master. It is evidence of where Christ fits in your priorities and in your life. Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. They are necessary, but you can't get it out of order. If you're rooted in Christ, you'll grow. It's a given. Not all will grow at the same rate, but it is impossible to remain a non-fruit-bearing Christian, to walk with Christ and have no evidence whatsoever in your life. The second metaphor is construction. Again, an easy one for us to see, being built up in Him. And it's an ongoing, it's a perpetual action that we are being built up in Him. You were rooted in Christ once to grow on the day of salvation. But ongoing, for the number of days that God gives you to breathe and live and walk in this life, for your whole life you are being built up in Jesus Christ. And we know that we are built up on what? On a foundation. We're built on a foundation, and the people of God and His church have a foundation. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. The foundation is Scripture, which contains the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus Christ is the central message of God's redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. He is the chief cornerstone. We are called in no uncertain terms in Acts 20 to immerse ourselves in the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is His Word that builds us up. We are called to consistently and persistently grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter tells us that. And that's consistent with where we're at in Colossians because, of course, we would. He is the one in whom is hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Growth is ultimately going to result, the verse says, in you being established in the faith. And that is what we call a divine passive. You are rooted in Jesus. You are devoted to His Lordship in all of life. And as you grow in knowledge and wisdom in accordance with the Bible, God is establishing you firmly in the faith. 
Now, if you know God, if you know Jesus Christ if Lord, as Lord, if you are rooted in Him, if you are being built up daily in Christ, if you are being established in the faith, there is really only one proper response, and that is abundant thankfulness. Abundant thankfulness. Our third point, verse 7, it concludes that the true Christian will be abounding in thanksgiving. True Christian will be abounding in thanksgiving. Well, is this because if you follow Christ, he's going to give you a better job, a bigger house, a nicer car, you won't get sick, uh, you, you will walk through this life virtually unscathed by all the problems that other people have? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We live in a sinful world. We are corrupted with original sin. Christians will suffer like every other person in this life. We live in a creation that is groaning under the weight of sin, eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that. We lose jobs. Family members pass away unexpectedly. We have disabilities. We have sicknesses. And you can add to all of that that we gain one thing that the world does not have. All who seek to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You will. You may not quite recognize it. It might be because of the choices you're making, too. But I read this week, and this is becoming a very common story, I read this week about a woman who was fired after 17 years of working for a health system, the Michigan hospital system. And what was she fired for? Well, she wasn't fired because of performance. That much is clear. They were clear about that. She was fired because she would not compromise her faith in Jesus Christ. She would not compromise on the truth of God's revealed will in Scripture. She would not agree and celebrate this gender confusion thing that is created by Satan himself, but instead she would hold too fast to her convictions. And she could not participate in the mutilation of children because it's outside of God's world will. So she was fired. Months of harassment, months of hate. The story is pretty dreadful. She's now unemployed. And so I ask you, thinking of that situation, and many others are in it, should she be thankful? The Bible tells us, yes, right? She is a partaker of the sufferings of Christ in this little way. But she is a mother of four and is losing her house. How thankful can you be? But we are to be continually thankful, right? That's what it tells us. Gratitude, thankfulness, is the mark of one who lives in Christ and walks with Him moment by moment, day by day. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Well, it tells us this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Some of you know I actually chose that verse to preach to good Sam. Seems like a weird one to preach, right? I'm preaching to a group who is very unhappy being there, some of them at least to a man with no leg, to one of our church members who's in a motorized wheelchair, to a whole bunch of people in wheelchairs. Give thanks in all circumstances. See, the message is clear. If you're saved by Jesus Christ, by His precious blood on the cross, you are equipped by the Holy Spirit to truly give thanks in all circumstances. That is the will of God, and God's will is always accomplished. Our thanksgiving is rooted in Christ, not our circumstances. That is the key. Our thanksgiving, our ability to be thankful, is rooted in Christ. Not our circumstances. We're not idiots. We don't enjoy pain. I hope we don't. But we're thankful. 
Because it's a result of being built up in Him, and it is a great witness to the unbelieving world of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us when we can truly be bursting with thankfulness that points to the goodness of God. Knowing that God is good in all circumstances, whether things are going well or whether we are suffering. Our thankfulness is a recognition of who God is and what He has done to save us. If you can get that, right? We don't, we're not owed this. It's by His grace. He sent His Son, perfect, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh, to live in humiliation, to die in worse humiliation and pain, to drink the full cup of wrath that we deserve. He sent Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might be cloaked with the righteousness of Christ. And our thankfulness is a recognition in the Christian heart that what we deserve is God's justice and God's wrath. But what we receive in Christ is His mercy and His grace and life and salvation and a hope. Thankful Christian claims nothing, nothing on their own, not their own merit. It only recognizes that we have received everything from God. The Bible tells us every good gift and every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. So if we are truly saved by grace, through Jesus Christ alone, We are called to live in obedience to God's Word. We are called to be abundantly thankful in all circumstances as recipients of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Not by our own works, but by His life and His death. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. That is our fourth point. I want to come full circle and end on this. And the reason that it is so stuck in my head is because I think it is so easy for us and easy for the modern professing Christian to sit in church week after week or to listen online if that suits your fancy, to not gather, and then dismiss the truth of Scripture. God didn't actually say, right? We, we fall into that trap without actually uh, even thinking about it. We go off and we seek our own pleasures, our own hobbies, our own things, and we are masters of justification. God may say, worship me in this way, and we'll go do something entirely different, and we'll tell everyone, I'm worshiping God in my own special way, which happens to allow me to also do the other things I really love. I think it's too easy for us to think God didn't actually say that we are called to receive Christ Jesus as Lord, to submit to His will, to be rooted in Him, continually growing in our obedience and our faithfulness, abounding in thanksgiving for what He has done, but willing to suffer willing to suffer for Him, all for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So remember Lot's wife. You know the story, I think. God executed His judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for their rebellion against God, ultimately for their homosexuality, which is an abomination to God. Could not be more clear. There is so much to be said about Lot that I wish that we could preach on that, but We do not have time to do both. So we're just going to focus because Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. 2 Peter says this in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example. Through your head, it's not just a historical story. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, so this tells us something about Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Careful the company you keep. Lot destroyed his communion with God. He suffered tremendously in this life. And one of the ways that he suffered greatly is that his entire family would go to eternal damnation in hell, even though he was saved. The most dreadful thing that could ever be said to a father, because of your life, your choices, you led your family away from Christ. That's Lot. But what of Lot's wife? Let's pick this one up in Genesis 19. Verse 15, God has warned, he has said he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men, the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not look back or stop anywhere in that valley. Be fully devoted to God. He is saving you. Keep your eyes fixed on what is righteous, on God. And they were headed for a city named Zor. Verse 23 says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley. And all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him. He had drifted behind. Behind him. Looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. She had immediate, permanent, eternal judgment. On the spot. And then we jump to Luke. Chapter 17. And Jesus does not call on his disciples to remember Hannah or Sarah or Ruth or any of the other righteous women in the Bible. Instead, Jesus zooms in on one woman whose soul was forever lost, and he says to his disciples, remember Lot's wife. And I don't think I said where this is at. I think it's in Luke 17, 32, for those who are taking notes. What was Jesus doing at this point? What was the conversation? What was the context? In Luke 17, Jesus is speaking to them about the final day, the day he will come to judge the living and the dead. They that he will come and judge them in accordance with Scripture. And he is describing how unprepared so many people will be. Who say they know him. It's the same warning as Matthew 7. Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, we did all these great things and we said we were Christians. And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. The same warning. Remember Lot's wife. Now, to keep this speeding along. I am going to read from uh, J.C. Ryle because he did some great work on this and this will help us move quickly. Lot's wife had a godly man for a husband. She had Abraham, the father of the faithful, for her uncle by marriage. The faith, the knowledge, and the prayers of these two righteous men could could have been no secret to her. It is impossible that she could have dwelt in the tents with them for any length of time without knowing whose they were and whom they served. Religion with them was no mere formal business. It was the ruling principle of their lives. All this Lot's wife must have seen and must have known. The warning for all who grow up in Christian homes and 
come to church. He has seen all of this righteousness, this dedication to God. When Abraham first received the promises, it is probable that Lot's wife was there. When he built his altar by his tent between High and Bethel, it is probable she was there. When Lot was taken captive and delivered by God's intervention, she was there. When the angels came to Sodom and warned her husband to flee, she saw them. When they took them by the hand and led them out of the city, she was one of those whom they had helped to escape. Sort of goes on and on from there, but what good did all of that do in Lot's Lot's wife, in her heart? None at all. It did nothing at all. Despite all of the opportunities she had to repent and believe, despite the special warnings that she received, being around godly and dedicated people, she lived and died graceless, godless, unrepentant of her sin, and unbelieving. And judgment was executed immediately. So what was her problem? As we see in the text, she knew the truth. She kept hold of the world. She loved the world. And what are God's children called to do? We're not called to depart from the world. We are God's light, the city on the hill for the world. But we are called to be separated from the world. We just can't be in both. You can't keep a foot in both camps. And what was rattling around in my head is, if you've not lost anything for Christ, had to leave former acquaintances, received the scorn of former friends or family members, left groups that have moved past you towards ungodliness, lost acquaintances or close relationships or opportunities that you wish that you had, if you've lost nothing, you are either extraordinarily blessed and possibly extraordinarily righteous, and you may be, but it's unlikely. Maybe you've just not remembered the fate of Lot's wife because you cannot be God's child, a friend of God, and a friend of the world at the same time. The Bible is abundantly clear. Let us just catalog a few of her sins and then we'll close on this. The warning to us all. First, Lot's wife doubted the word of God. She doubted the word of God. She believed some of it, but not all of it. She saw the wickedness of her city. She she seemed to love her place among them. She saw the evidence. Things we don't even get to see. She saw the evidence that the angels were speaking the very word of God. They blinded the men who were going to commit homosexual acts. They blinded them. And she knew that. She knew who these angels were. She doubted the full truth of God's word. As she approached the city of Zor, the city of safety, what happened? The sun came up do this every day. The sun came up. The day began like any other. She drifted behind Lot. Did God actually say he was going to destroy the wicked? I don't know. It's a beautiful day. I kind of miss him. Did God actually say the lie of the devil? He isn't really going to destroy Sodom. It's peaceful. There's no noise. The sun is up. So she doubted God's word. And she disobeyed his command. And she turned back toward her former ways. And she died in her sin immediately. No chance of repentance. No second chances. Remember Lot's wife is what Jesus said. Know that when we take up the word of God, we do not play around with the opinions of men. We can't shuffle these things around. It is the very word of God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out, spoken to us. You cannot play around with this. 
You cannot be a master of justification when you want what the world has to offer. We must be honest with ourselves when we examine ourselves. And do not think to yourself, tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day I will turn to Christ. Tomorrow's the day I will obey Him. Not this Sunday. Next Sunday I'll go talk to somebody about these things that Christ commands us to do. Next Sunday I will give my heart to Christ. Now as we read in 2 Corinthians 6, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't sit and listen and do nothing. Let it fall off your stony heart. Pray that God would replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Let the Holy Spirit work within you. Behold, the text says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Nowhere in Scripture does it guarantee you the next hour or the next day or the next week. It just calls you to act upon God's truth now. Second, she was so close to being saved, but she was lost. This is a dreadful situation. She took the angel's hand. She ran with righteous lot for a while. But with the thoughts of what she was leaving behind, what she loved, the people who loved her in return, the things they stood for, that she enjoyed, she began to linger. And by the time she turns, she is slowed. She is behind Lot. Her heart does not belong to God. Her heart belongs to the world. She was being pulled back by her true love. That is the way with soul-destroying sin. Sins that we don't crush and kill and mortify in our flesh but continue to dabble in. It's not just the grotesque sins or the big ones that you see around us. Remember, the devil is not some cartoonish character in red tights and horns. The devil, we're told, appears as an angel of light. He appears righteous. He will speak to you through the men and women who will tell you lies, make you feel good, and make you think that you can actually hold on to these abominations of the world and align yourselves with them but still think that you're in Christ. No, remember Lot's wife. People profess to love Jesus, but they love the world more. And it's evident by what they do. They turn to other ideas. They backslide a little here, a little there. They advertise that I'm part of this group. This group hates God, but I'm part of them. I just go to church on Sunday, so that seems okay. And they watch all of the same media that numbs them to sin by these constant little compromises that we think are okay. And grace seems to be of no value. It's an entitlement. God has to. You have misunderstood grace. This is the warning given to the church in Ephesus. But I have this against you, says Christ, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I beg you, turn from sin today. Turn to Christ. Live for Christ. Pray that He will work in you. Finally, last point, simply being around religion is not enough. Inactive participation in worship is not enough. Not enough. You must have a heart for God. Lot's wife was around it her whole life. Somebody drug her to church, whatever they did in those days. Somebody drug her there. But she joins a whole list of others in the Bible that we don't have time to turn to. I'll just throw out a couple names for you. Joab. Joab was David's captain. Demas, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think. He was part of Paul's missionary team. 
Judas Iscariot was one of Christ's disciples. And together with Lot's wife, all of these men died in their sins. All went to eternal damnation despite the knowledge that they were privileged to have and receive and the worship they were around. But they didn't participate in with their heart. The warnings they heard, the opportunities they had. I've said we're going to close about four times. We really are with this quote. The beautiful quote, but it's also a tremendous warning. There is a love in God towards sinners, which is unspeakable and unsearchable. It's a beautiful thing. There is a love in God towards sinners, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so that is all of us. There is a love of God towards sinners, which is unspeakable and unsearchable, but it is for those who hear Christ's voice and follow him. He is a judge. You must follow him. Here's the warning. Cling to nothing. Cling to nothing, however dear. A thing, a person, a hobby, whatever it is. Cling to nothing, however dear, which interferes with your soul's salvation. Cling to nothing, however dear, which interferes with your soul's salvation. Give up everything, however precious, that comes between you and Jesus Christ. Give up everything, however precious to you in this life, that comes between you and Jesus Christ. If you think that you can associate with sin in this world, the things, the ideologies of the world, I beg you, listen to Jesus. He said it, not me. Remember Lot's wife. It's a warning for us all. There is but one way to salvation, and that is through true repentance. Turn away from your sins. Do not look back and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the one who came and died and rose again to save sinners. And as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Live in Him. Rooted in Him. Being built up in Him. Established in the faith just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving always. Heavenly Father, Oh, how we need the work of your Spirit in our lives. Lord, your word says that the Holy Spirit points us to Christ, but that he convicts the world of sin. Because without your word, we stray and we know not sin. Fall into the trap of declaring evil good and good evil. Know that you might shape our hearts and open our eyes. Cause us to flee from sin and from the former things that so characterized our life and drive us ever toward holiness and righteousness. God, give us eyes to see and keep them focused above. Help us as we continue to drift. Keep us from looking back. God, we pray that we might keep our hearts and minds focused on eternity, the glory, the promises, the beauty of Christ. Being with our Savior once for all, of joining Him and hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. And never being concerned about the warning that he will say, depart from me. Oh, what dreadful words those would be to hear. And though we deserve them, Lord, we are thankful for the grace and mercy poured out to us in your son, Jesus. That you have promised that all who come to him will never be turned away. Give us hearts that long for our Savior. Lord, our cultural moment. Help us understand 
what it means that he is Lord. He is king. He rules all. That all will stand before him and bow before him, confessing he is indeed Lord, Savior, Judge, God. Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the boldness to live for Christ and to speak the truth of his word to a lost world. You would give us the strength to endure the rejection that comes from that, but that you would always spark in our hearts abundant thankfulness, keeping us focused on the fact that the penalty for our sin was death. You sent your son to die in our place. Father, we're so grateful for your mercy, the grace that we did not deserve. Let us show this in our love for one another. Equip us, grow us, build us up in your word. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and our King.